are listening to Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepherd, and we have entered the season of Advent. This is a season of expectation and preparation for the coming of Christmas. And of course, Christmas is something very familiar, very comforting, like a well-worn pair of slippers that we put on when the weather gets cold. But the thing about it is, at the heart of Christmas, there is a profound mystery. God coming into the world, being born amongst us as one of us, yet still God. So during this Advent season, instead of rushing on to Christmas, we are pausing, we're waiting. And in the waiting, we are journeying together into the mystery. Here's this week's message. Our first scripture meeting, uh, reading today is from Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then the two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, if you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the first letter to Timothy in the third chapter, just one verse to add on to what we've just heard. Let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. Without any doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. He was revealed in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in throughout the world, and taken up in glory. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Let's pray together. Open unto us, holy God, thy store of boundless energy. Open unto us the well of grace that is thy word, that it may grip us and shake us 
Open unto us the depths of our days, the dark and foreboding places, the cracks where the light shines in. Open unto us, O holy mystery, thy very self, that we may draw near, be still, and be transformed. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Friends, yesterday would have been the 100th birthday of Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic strip. The occasion was marked by the re-release of a book called The Gospel According to Peanuts by Robert Short. It includes a number of particularly choice panels and comic strips from uh, the Peanuts series. In one of these panels, Linus walks up to his sister, Lucy, who is jumping rope, and says to her, Did you know that the Bible contains 3,566,480 letters and 773,893 words? And the next frame has no words in it. Just Lucy jumping her rope. And then Linus follows up and says, You're just not that interested in theology, are you? She just keeps jumping her rope. Linus's fun fact about the Bible reflects a certain kind of theology, I think, the kind that deals in known quantities of the Christian faith. And Lucy's response, I think, speaks volume about how little those facts actually move us. Perhaps what interests us about God and about Christ, about Advent and about Christmas, about our spiritual lives in this season, is not how many letters there are in the scriptures. Perhaps what grifts us and moves us is something else. But there is this strong tendency, I think, towards factification in theology. We owe that in part to the German school of higher criticism which emerged in the 19th and 20th centuries with figures with great Germanic names like Julius Wellhausen and David Strauss and Gerhard von Rad. Love those German names. These scholars employed the methods of modern thinking. They used these tools of thought to dissect the scriptures, to get at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Scholars of higher criticism, as it was referred to, sought to discern the historical context of the scripture, to explain it so that we modern people could understand this strange and ancient world. They would analyze the text of the Bible as though it were any other book, identifying its form and genre. And the goal of many of these scholars was the demythologization of scripture separating fact from what they saw as fictions. Useful fictions, perhaps, but fictions nonetheless. These biblical scholars were joined by other anthropologists and sociologists like Max Weber and Emil Durkheim and the father of the modern field of religious studies, Frederick Max Muller. All of these folks observed and defined the social dynamics and practices of religious people. They would come and study congregations like this one and define them in terms of categories, getting down to the essence of what religion really is by observing it scientifically. 
Of course, the most famous example of this around that time was Karl Marx, who analyzed religion and concluded that it was the opiate of the people, meant to keep the poor and the working class compliant and docile so the rich can get richer. Now, in case it is not already obvious to many of you, my day job, uh, when I'm not here, is to teach at UMass Lowell. And one of the things that I teach there uh, is an introductory course in the study of religion. I look out at a classroom full of Gen Zers and I explain to them these various methods of investigating religion, to study it, to understand it. Most of them have little or no direct acquaintance with religion, Christian or otherwise. And yet, in our modern globalized world in which we live, religion remains important to many people. And so, if the university is to fulfill its mission to prepare students to succeed in college and be informed citizens in a global environment, then they got to learn about religion. And that's what I'm there for. UMass Lowell is like other universities. They are like factories. We employ the machinery of modern critical thought and we churn out knowledge. The researchers produce it, the professors transmit it, the students, when they're awake, they absorb it. And society, democracy, freedom, the global environment benefits from this production. Even knowledge about the obscure and, dare I say, mysterious experience of religion has its place in this economy of ideas. Along those lines, this semester, though, I've been teaching a course called uh, Introduction to Logic and Critical Reasoning. For 10 weeks, I trained up the students in this class in the practice of symbolic logic, which is a lot like doing algebra, except with words instead of numbers that makes any sense. Don't worry, it didn't to them either. <laughs> it involves that complex system of letters and symbols that represent and stand in for ideas and words. This is so that you can represent arguments and demonstrate their quality, whether they're good or bad, using this symbolic system. And as I was working with the students to review for their last midterm, where they'd have to put these skills to the test, uh, one of the students thoughtfully asked the question that I think many of them had been thinking but not willing to ask for the last couple months, which is, um, what is the point of this? <laughs> what is it used for? What is its use? And I answered them quite honestly, uh, nothing. <laughs> it has no point. It, will ne it has no discernible use beyond the four walls of this classroom. Even the few philosophy majors in this room, they, were, they will likely never encounter symbolic logic again in the course of their academic career. It is useless. I said, aside from being a fun party trick that they're more than willing, they should be more than willing to whip out at the Thanksgiving dinner table to show off to their parents how much they've learned. Uh, other than that, it's basically useless. And so the student asked, then why why would we learn these things? Why would we do this? And so I reminded them of something I had said at the beginning, which was that symbolic logic is a lot like putting your thoughts, your words, your ideas into a box. And some ideas are like cats. 
They're simple and flexible, and they fit really nicely into the box. They love to go into the box. But a lot of the ideas, a lot of the words, a lot of the thoughts that we have, that we try to experience in the world, they do not fit neatly into the box. And the more we try to fit them into this complex system, the more we notice how the box chafes and binds and limits what we can say, what we can think. And in some ways, symbolic logic is simply the most rigorous expression of a general tendency of all modern thinking. It's presumably what they've been enrolled in this college to learn. The goal of this form of thinking, of science and knowledge, is to master our experience through clearly defined methods and rules. We think, we clarify, we quantify, we render certain the uncertainty of the world so that we can understand the way things are and the way they will be. And so then, when I asked my students what they think about the second part of the class's title, critical reasoning, they say, well, that's got to be about this, this other part. It's got to be about opening our minds to new ideas. But it's also got to be about solving problems. It's got to be where there's something useful in this class, right? That was their hope. Indeed, there is something to that. The American philosopher John Dewey once said, the essence of critical thinking is to suspend our judgment. And the essence of this suspense is inquiry to determine the nature of a problem before proceeding to attempts at its solution. In other words, in this class where we are thinking about our thinking, one of the basic assumptions is that thinking is about solving problems. It's a bedrock assumption most of us have without even realizing. Most any problem we think is, in, at least in theory, solvable if we just bring enough intelligence, enough creativity, enough critical thinking to bear upon it. And that's true in academia, but it's also true out in the world. When the plumber comes to your house and discerns the leaky pipe and fixes it, that is an act of critical thinking, suspending judgment long enough to understand the nature of the problem and then solving it. The retail sales associate who discerns the desire of an unruly or indecisive customer, that is an act of critical thinking as well. Even children on the playground are developing this problem-solving skill, critical thinking. It is what we have long assumed and been taught, the end-all, be-all of our survival in this modern world. The interesting thing about critical thinking, I think, as a phrase, is that it derives from a Greek word that means to cut. The word critique comes from this word to cut. And one way to understand what critical thinking about is about is about cutting up a problem into its parts, understanding it piece by piece, solving it little by little. But the other sense of critical thinking is that it's about the effect of a cut. A cut creates an edge, a boundary, and a limit. In this sense, critical thinking is about understanding the limits of our thought the limits of our ability to solve problems, the limits of what counts as knowledge and what's knowable. And that brings us back to this first Sunday 
an advent where we hear the words of Jesus, you do not know. The object of our attention when we gather for worship is God. And we have all of these wonderful formula to describe what God is. Three persons in one, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, And as you can tell, I stand deeply in the tradition that is all about giving these formula, creating them, providing arguments and explanations that that give shape to the idea of what God is. But here today, what we have to appreciate in this season of Advent is that we are confronted by a great and vast and deep mystery, deeper than any of those concepts or ideas ever hope to get at. And there is, is, in the one sense, just the generic mystery of God, who God is, what God is. God who, who says in Exodus that I am what I am. That's not very helpful. The mystic philosopher Pseudo Dionysus wrote in the fifth or sixth century that The divine is neither soul nor mind, order or greatness or littleness. The divine is not immovable or in motion or at rest and has no power and is not power or light and does not live and is not life, nor is it one, nor is it Godhead or goodness, nor does it belong to the category of existence or non-existence. I can read it again but it will not make any more sense the second time. Without a doubt, the author of 1 Timothy is correct. The mystery of our religion is great. But greater still is this. Greater still is the fact that God, the God whose name makes no sense, whose description makes no sense, that God is drawing near. Indeed, that God has come, is coming, and will come again. Jesus told everyone who had ears to listen, who knew him, who trusted him, that even these folks who knew him best, they would not know, they would not know the hour of God's coming, that the appearance of God would always be something unexpected and mystifying, even perhaps unwelcome, What Jesus describes is a dizzying scene. He likens it to the time of Noah, a time that was so chaotic that God thought it was a good idea to just wipe out creation and start fresh. Jesus says, there will be people in the fields and one of them will be taken and the other won't. It won't make any sense why. One woman will be milling grain and she'll be taken, the other will be there, still holding the bag. Why? You do not know. Of course, many have tried to make sense of these predictions. Many have weaponized these words to instill fear into people about a rapture, about a judgment. Oftentimes, the motivation here is to coerce them into some sort of conformity, not conformity to the mystery of God, but conformity to to a culture of repression and exclusion. But the coming of Christ is not a weapon 
to be wielded. It is also, though, not something we can see fit to solve using our modern thinking. In fact, it defies that thought, pushing us past the limit of our comprehension and asking us simply to wonder at this mystery. I think that the greatest gift that Charles Schultz gave us was the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Yes, you know it? You're familiar with it? If you haven't seen it, it revolves around Charlie Brown, a character who is, generally speaking, quite morose. But in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, he is morose for a particular reason. He does not understand the meaning of Christmas. And he keeps asking, please, will someone explain it to me? Explain what Christmas is all about. Towards the end of the film, he's on, he's on a stage with his friend Linus, and he cries out, isn't there anyone who knows what this Christmas is all about? And Linus turns to him and says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he walks out on stage, and he says, lights, please. And do you know what he says then? He does not offer some pithy catchphrase. He does not give some lengthy exposition of the doctrine of incarnation. He simply proclaims the gospel with his whole heart, without explanation, without critique. And I think it is what he does not say that we have to hold on to this Advent season, in this season of waiting for God to come, waiting for a God who is drawing near. And in waiting, we may allow ourselves to be drawn into the mystery of Christmas. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Union Congregational Church and our ministries, you can visit churchbythepark.org, or you can find us on Facebook at Church by the Park. You are more than welcome to join us for worship throughout this Advent season at Union, either on Sundays at 10.15 a.m., in person at 55 Rhodes Avenue in Walpole, or online via live stream. We'll also have a special candlelight service on Christmas Eve, December 24th at 5 p.m. I hope today's message has helped lead you into the mystery of this season to open your heart to the wonder of God's presence and the gift of God's grace. Until next time, may grace and peace be with you.